Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome you certainly to this uh, policy forum we're having today on freeing speech now, uh, the case that uh, the Speech Now organization has brought uh, on First Amendment grounds. Let me begin with some administrative matters. First of all, I'd like to ask you if you have your cell phone or pager with you, either to put it on silent or to turn it off uh, during our uh, uh, event. Uh, also, basically what we will do today is we'll have presentations by all of our speakers uh, and perhaps some uh, going back and forth between them. And then we'll also have a question and a uh, answer session thereafter in which you can pose your questions or things that occur to you during the presentations to our speakers. And thereafter, perhaps about 1.30 or so, we'll go upstairs and have the famous Cato lunch. And uh, you'll have also a chance to speak directly to the, to the speakers there, if you like. Um, today's presentation, it strikes me, goes to the heart of what the Cato Institute is all about. Uh, not only have we been concerned about freedom of speech, particularly in the campaign finance regulation area for some time, we have done so in pursuit of our central mission. If you go to the Cato website, which I encourage you to do, cato.org, you'll find there that the Cato mission is succinctly stated. The Cato Institute seeks to broaden the parameters of public policy to debate to allow consideration of the traditional American principles of limited government, individual liberty, free markets, and peace. Some of those traditional principles are found, first of all, in the Declaration and the U.S. Constitution. For example, individual liberty as well as limited government finds expression in the First Amendment. And I read that for you. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Recently, a new group, Speech Now, sought to exercise their First Amendment rights. They discovered that Congress had indeed made many laws in this area, not no law, bearing on freedom of speech and association. Thus, they have sought to vindicate their rights in the court. Today, we're pleased to have the founder and president of Speech Now, a lawyer who is representing the group, and a leading expert on campaign finance regulation to comment on this effort, both the facts as to the law. We shall hear first from Steve Simpson. Uh, Steve is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. He currently focuses primarily on free speech cases at the state, in state and federal courts across the country. Steve's views and writings have been published in a number of newspapers and journals, including the Washington Post, Legal Times, The Wall Street Journal, New York Post, The Houston Chronicle, and others. Before coming to the Institute for Justice, Steve spent five years as a litigator with the international law firm Sherman and Sterling, and he clerked for two years for a federal district court in Florida. Steve is a member of the Bar of, Bars of New York and the District of Columbia. Steve will be fo uh, followed immediately by uh, David Keating, who is the president and founder of Speech Now. So, Steve, welcome. <clears throat> uh, 
Thanks, John, and uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for putting on this forum on this important topic. SpeechNow is an organization dedicated to the idea that when politicians refuse or fail to support constitutional liberties, they should feel the consequences of their actions at the ballot box. Now, David will address uh, the details of speechnow.org in, uh, in just a moment, but in essence, it's a group of individuals who want to get together to urge citizens to protect the First Amendment with their votes. Speechnow.org will solicit donations from individuals to pay for television advertisements calling for the election of candidates who support the First Amendment and the defeat of candidates who do not. Now, unfortunately, we're not here today simply to discuss an exciting new organization that will add an important or unique voice to an important debate. We are here to discuss a lawsuit. SpeechNow.org, despite its name, hasn't actually been able to speak yet. Instead, it has to navigate the complex and burdensome campaign finance laws before it's even allowed to criticize politicians who support those laws. And under those laws, groups like, like SpeechNow.org are virtually prohibited from functioning. Now, under the campaign finance laws, SpeechNow.org is what is known as a political committee or a PAC. A PAC is a group of two or more people who get together and spend or receive more than $1,000 to influence a federal election. As a political committee, SpeechNow.org is prohibited from accepting contributions of greater than $5,000 from any individual per year, and it is subject to a number of burdensome uh, administrative, organizational, and uh, reporting obligations. As John mentioned, uh, SpeechNow.org and a number of its supporters have challenged these laws now in federal court. They filed a lawsuit on the uh, 14th of February challenging these provisions as they apply to groups like SpeechNow.org in, uh, in federal district court in the District of Columbia. Now, the $5,000 contribution limit may not sound like a terribly onerous burden, but consider the expense of television advertising. To run advertisements against candidates in just two elections could easily cost SpeechNow.org upwards of $150,000, just two candidates in two elections. And that's running the ads a modest number of times. If they really wanted to run the ads enough to actually ensure that they would reach their target audience and increase the chances that people would actually see the ads and remember them, could easily run them to half a million dollars. In short, in America today, talk is not cheap. Whether we like it or not, to speak effectively to a large audience, especially in a political campaign, costs a large amount of money. It requires the expenditure of huge amounts of money. Under the contribution limits that apply to speechnow.org, all but the most sophisticated groups with dedicated fundraisers and the time to amass millions of dollars are effectively cut out of the debate. Now, the contribution limits that apply to speechnow.org restrict not only the, the, the speech of the group itself, they also restrict the rights to speech and association of people who want to support the group. 
uh, most people simply don't have the ability, the knowledge, the time, to say nothing of the financial resources to produce and broadcast television advertisements. But they can solve this problem by associating with those who do. Take, for instance, uh, a few of the other plaintiffs in the case who, who want to support speechnow.org. One is uh, a man by the name of Fred Young. He agrees with its mission. He agrees with its means. He wants to give them money that will allow them to fund their advertisements. Fred's not a professional intellectual or a professional activist, so he doesn't have the real experience to be able to produce ads, but he does have the money to produce ads. As a result, he wants to associate with a gentleman like David Keating, who does have the experience and the knowledge, and by associating with David, he'd actually be able to effectively speak out and reach individuals on the topics that he wants to speak about. Now, on the other side of the extreme, two other individuals who also want to support speechnow.org, Scott Burkhart and Brad Russo. Like Fred, they lack the knowledge and the experience to, to produce television advertisements. Unlike Fred, they also they, they lack the, the funds. They could contribute maybe a few hundred dollars. But by, again, associating with David Keating and wealthier donors of speechnow.org, like Fred Young, they could actually have a voice in the debate. Now, each of these individuals wants to pool their funds and associate with one another and with a group like speechnow.org in order to amplify their voices beyond what they could, any of them could achieve on their own. Standing alone, their options are extremely limited. By associating with David and speechnow.org, they can actually be heard. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment to consider the fact that a group such as this, a group of individuals who want to get together and spend their own money on their own speech, actually has to go to court to find out if they will be able to do so free of limits that effectively prevent them from operating. It's not an exaggeration to say that groups like speechnow.org operate at the very heart or core of the First Amendment. They want to do precisely what the First Amendment was designed to allow citizens to do. They want to speak out in a way that they hope will influence the future course of their government. James Madison described the First Amendment, or the, free, the right of free speech, as, quote, the right of freely examining public characters and measures which has ever been justly deemed the only effectual guardian of every other right. The Supreme Court has repeatedly echoed this sentiment over the years, stating that a major purpose of the First Amendment was to, quote, protect the free discussion of governmental affairs because, quote, speech concerning public affairs is more than self-expression. It is the essence of self-government. As a result, the Supreme Court likens the First Amendment to protecting a marketplace for the clash of different views and conflicting ideas in which debate must remain uninhibited, robust, and wide open. Speechnow.org and its supporters simply want to be able to compete in the marketplace of ideas. They want to be able to participate effectively in the process of self-government. In short, they want to try to influence the outcome of elections so they can influence the policymakers who will be elected in the hopes of influencing protections for the First Amendment and First Amendment rights. That is what the First Amendment is all about. Now, we're told that the purpose of campaign finance laws is to prevent the corruption of candidates, but speechnow.org 
can't raise any concerns about corruption for the simple reason that it will not contribute any money to candidates. It won't give money to candidates. It won't coordinate its activities with candidates. It's not a corporation or a union and will not accept any corporate or union funds, so there's no concern about corporate or union control of elections. It is, in effect, a group of individuals who simply want to spend their own money on their own speech. The campaign finance laws are exceedingly complex, as are the cases that interpret those laws, but this case really boils down to a pretty simple principle. The First Amendment guarantees individuals the right to speak without limit. It's common sense that groups must be allowed to do the same thing. Ever since the Supreme Court's seminal case in Buckley versus Vallejo on modern campaign finance laws, the court has made clear that limits on what individuals may spend, even on express advocacy, that is to say, calling for the vote, voting for or against a politician, violate the right to free speech. So as a result, a person like George Soros can spend a million dollars advocating for the election or defeat of particular politicians, and he's free to do so, as long as he doesn't coordinate with those politicians or give money to them. Our position is groups must be permitted to do precisely the same thing. It makes no sense to prevent them from doing so. Now, the Supreme Court has also held, with respect to contribution limits, the limits that apply to speechnow.org, that they have to serve the purpose of preventing corruption. As a result, in one case that involved contributions to a ballot issue committee and limits on those contributions, the Supreme Court said, in essence, there's no politician involved here, there's no candidate, this group doesn't want to give money to candidates, so limits on their contributions amount to the same thing as limits on their expenditures. In essence, it prevents the individuals from pooling their funds and spending them on speech. Now, if you put those principles together, on the one hand, that individuals are permitted to speak without limit or spend as much money on their own speech as they wish, and on the other, that as long as they don't raise problems of corruption, groups should be able to do the same thing without contribution limits. You get the rule of law that should apply in this case. If an individual like George Soros can spend millions of dollars campaigning, why can't two or more individuals get, to get together and do precisely the same thing? Now, would victory for speech now mean that groups of citizens could band together and spend unlimited funds to influence the outcome of elections? The answer is absolutely yes. And I can only hope that if we are successful in this case, many groups and many individuals will join together and do precisely that. That would mean, after all, more voices competing in the marketplace of ideas, it would mean that political elections were truly, or debate on political elections were truly uninhibited, robust, and wide open. It would mean that individuals could, in essence, put their money where their mouths are and participate in what the Supreme Court has referred to as the essence of self-government. That is ultimately what the First Amendment is about. And if speech now can clear the way for that, hap that, that to happen, we will consider this case to have been a rousing success. Thank you, and now I'd like to turn it over to the founder of Speech Now, David Keating. Thank you, Steve. And uh, I, I was watching a CPAC uh, 
speech by one of the presidential candidates. I'll let you guess which one. And he was going through, and in fact, he hadn't been at CPAC the year before, give you more of a clue. And he was going through all the issues that he was trying to find common ground with people. And then in part of his speech, he said, and I believe in the Second Amendment rights, and on and on and on. And what leapt into my mind is, hey, you forgot an amendment. What about the First Amendment? And too often, politicians just skip over the First Amendment, and they go directly to the Second Amendment. And I thought, we need to have a group to fight for the First Amendment, because there isn't anybody out there doing it in the election environment. Now, the ACLU is doing it in, in court. They're doing it before Congress. But I haven't seen the ACLU go out and run any ads saying, defeat this person because he voted for McCain-Feingold or he voted for this other restrictions on free speech. And so I think we need to have a group out there telling people who's good and who's bad on the First Amendment. And that's why I decided we need something like speech now. So I thought, okay, well, how am I going to do this? And I, I've read a lot about concerns people have about campaign finance. I've read a lot of the court decisions. And what popped into my mind is, well, wait a minute. If I did this on my own, I could spend as much money as I want. No limit. Everybody agrees. Even the Federal Election Commission agrees that I could spend as much money as I want. Unfortunately, I don't have enough money on my own to do this effectively. So I thought, well, why can't I, if one person can spend as much as he wants, then why can't two of us spend a lot less than what a millionaire might spend on his own personal race? And I've seen a lot of millionaires run for Congress. In fact, I just saw one in Maryland, my home state, spend nearly a million dollars running for Congress. Now, he can spend a million dollars saying whatever he wants, but the Federal Election Commission says if a bunch of us sit around a table in our kitchen and say, hey, we don't like this, let's get together and kick in, I'll kick in 6,000, I'll kick in 10, and if we do this and put a bank account in, guess what? We just violated the law. We could go to jail, theoretically, if we knew what we were doing, and if we didn't know what we were doing, we'd still be in a lot of trouble. And that's, that's the attitude of the government right now. But I didn't think this was right when I read some of the court decisions. So I tried to draft a structure that I thought maybe the Federal Election Commission would bless. I, I know it was kind of a, a distant hope, but maybe they would. So let me explain how we created speech. Now, my hope is that if the court eventually vindicates our structure, that groups all over the country will copy our structure and do what they want to do. Because fundamentally, what is speechnow.org? It's Americans talking to Americans. First, it's a small group of us talking to each other, identifying a cause that we believe in and saying, look, we've got to raise money for that cause to bring it to other people. So first we talk to each other about what we want to do, and we put money in to get it started. And then we take that money and we go talk to other Americans. That's basically the concept behind speech now. So to do that, to be sensitive to the people who are concerned about the possibility of corruption of the political process, we created a number of simple things that I think most people could follow if they want to start a similar organization. 
I like to call this type of structure an independent speech group because we're not a PAC and, and we're not any of these other entities that are out there, 527s and on and on and on. We're an independent speech group. So we're not incorporated. We're just a voluntary group of individuals. We don't take any corporate or labor union money and never will. We're completely independent from candidates and political parties. So any message that we craft will never be crafted in concert with a political party or a candidate. It will be truly independent. And we will never donate a dime or a nickel or even a penny to any candidate for office. All of our ads will have disclaimers, so the public will know who's paying for these ads. There's no secrecy here. And when we run an ad, no more than 48 hours after the ad starts, we will disclose who funded the ad and how much we spent on it. So this is completely transparent. Americans talking to Americans about what needs to be done for the future of our country, and we'll tell Americans who we are and how much we spent and how much each one of us have donated. So what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, in short, the Federal Election Commission Staff Council, which I think their job is to let's interpret the law to limit speech as opposed to taking a reasonable interpretation of the law and court decisions, they said, well, basically, you can't do this because if you spend more than $1,000 a year, you're a PAC. And you have to do all these regulations, so don't even think about it. But interestingly enough, at the time, um, well, this is going off a little bit to the side, but when the FEC finally dawdled around and took almost two months to take up our request, they only had two commissioners left on the commission instead of the six they're supposed to have. And you need four votes to get an agreement to give any advice. We asked them for advice. Could we do what we want to do? So, of course, they couldn't get four votes since only two were there. So one commissioner agreed with the staff, but the other commissioner, the chairman of the commission, David Mason, basically said, hey, you know what? I think you're right. You can do what you propose to do. I just recommend that you file your disclosures a little bit differently than when you, the way you proposed. So I guess we had a split decision, 1-1, one, one, but we needed four votes. So at that point, we couldn't do what we wanted to do without taking legal risk. And we're fortunate that the Institute for Justice and the Center for Competitive Politics has filed uh, this lawsuit on our behalf. So hopefully we'll be able to speak soon. Well, let me just say a little bit more about this um, concept of people getting together with people. I was on a radio show with Barry Lynn uh, last week, and Barry said, well, you know, we get a lot of people calling into my, my show, people who are upset about something, and he said it's clear to me that a lot of people just like to sit around and say, hey, let's do something about this. What would happen if a bunch of people all kicked in $500 each and they found 10 people and they put in 500 each, what would happen then? I said, well, they'd be a pack. And he said, you're kidding. I mean, he knew, he knew this. He was, you know, pretending. But, you know, the point is, if, if you even do a very low threshold of activity, you've fallen into the maw of the Federal Election Commission. So uh, that's one reason why I hope that, pe that we can have this independent speech group structure accepted by the commission eventually and the courts because it is going to be as simple as you can possibly make something and still be deferential to the people who want uh, political speech somewhat regulated through disclosure and so on. So now what is wrong with uh, 
the idea of being a PAC. Well, the key thing is, why aren't there any independent PACs anymore? Can anyone name an independent PAC that started up in the last two decades? You can't. And that, that's because the contribution limits are $5,000 per person per year. 5000 is a lot, but let me tell you, when the Cato Institute got started, I'm sure it wasn't limited to contributions of $5,000 each. The Heritage Foundation or the Brookings Institution, these things were started with seed money. And that's how most things get started. Now, yes, if there's a huge, outrageous thing that government does and with the Internet, I can imagine a case where a group could just spring forth. These sorts of things have happened in the past. I've seen them happen when uh, governors impose a huge tax increase after promising not to raise taxes. You may see a march of 50,000 people on the Capitol. So, yes, things can happen, but most things happen when you get some seed money. So the government's essentially saying you can't ever start a group to talk about uh, candidates because we're, we put these contribution limits on. So we hope that we'll just get rid of this stuff. Another problem with uh, doing independent groups like 527, a lot of people have said to me, why can't you just be a 527 and then speak about candidates? The problem with that is no one understands the election law. I've worked for many years working on advocacy related to tax laws. I know all about the IRS. And let me tell you, the tax law is a model of simplicity and clarity compared to the election law. I never thought I would say this about anything after working on tax law, but I'm, I'm telling you that's the case with election law. You talk to two lawyers, you give them t an ad, and two election lawyers may come up with completely different conclusions. And the way the Federal Election Commission decides whether an ad is an issue ad or express advocacy for a candidate is, it's like looking, it's like looking in a fog bank and trying to guess what you see there or... Uh, you just you have no idea. And what's worse is you don't even know who's going to decide it because they have up to five years to decide whether you were running an issue ad or an ad asking for a candidate. So I just wanted to be honest about this. We're not going to say this guy's supporting free speech. Tell him to keep thank him to support free speech. I mean, everybody thinks that's ridiculous. I kind of think it's ridiculous myself. If he's for free speech, we ought to be able to say, vote for the guy because he's defending our rights. And if he's not, let's defeat him. Let's just make this simple. So that's what speech now is all about. Let's, let's liberate speech so we can talk about what candidates and what congressmen are trying to shut us up so we can put them into retirement if they keep it up. And so the politicians won't skip the First Amendment anymore. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Stephen. David. Uh, now for our comments, we'll hear from uh, Michael J. Malbin. Uh, Mike Malbin's been executive director of the Campaign Finance Institute, a nonpartisan research institute which is affiliated with the George Washington University since it opened in 1999. He's also been a professor of political science at the State University of New York at Albany since 1990. Um, Mike Malbin has written extensively about money and politics for more than three decades. His most recent book, The Election After Reform, Money, Politics, and the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, was published in 2006. 
And since that time, the Campaign Finance Institute, under his leadership, has launched a major multi-state project entitled the CFI Participation Project, Strengthening Democracy Through Small Donors and Volunteers. Before he went to, to the State University of New York in 1990, Dr. Malbon was a reporter for the National Journal, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, associate director of the House Republican Conference, and a speechwriter to the Secretary of Defense, Mike Malbon. Thanks, John. Um, I see that this event is cast in the uh, title as free speech and association versus regulation. So I guess I'm here to play the regulation role. You'll, You'll soon see that I do not wear that hat very comfortably, but in some ways it'll fit. And in any case, uh, it'll give the other panelists uh, a preview of some of the arguments they'll be hearing in coming months, and they'll get a chance to rehearse their answers. Um, As John mentioned uh, uh, in the generous introduction, uh, I am the executive director of the Campaign Finance Institute, but I want to stipulate that I'm speaking here for myself and not for CFI. Uh, Speech Now is presenting a very impressively argued and very important case. The documents filed with the Federal Election Commission were carefully crafted within and within the existing framework of existing constitutional law, making one challenge within an existing framework. The framework is based on the 30-year-old distinction in the Buckley versus Vallejo case between contributions and expenditures. I'm going to be raising a few questions questions about SpeechNow's case, but I do accept most of that framework. But the details are important. And since I'm, I may be one of the few people on either side of the normal campaign finance debates who actually supports Buckley uh, as opposed to lives with it, uh, I want to begin there before I get to the case. The SpeechNow case is an easy one to argue if you reject contribution limits in principle and you put up with them because the law says you have to. In that case, you'll argue against, uh, you'll argue in favor of speech now without worrying about the implications for different fact situations than the one it presents. It's also an easy case if you're on the other side of the argument um, and you feel that the Buckley Court should have upheld the limits on independent spending in 1976. Um, If that's the way you feel, you'll argue against speechnow.org you'll say that, hey, SpeechNow can spend unlimited amounts of money. Uh, They just have limits on their contributions, and you really won't care very much about the implications of those contribution limits in the other direction. But but neither of those positions is where I begin from, and nor does does the Supreme Court. Uh, Twelve years ago, just to let you know that there's some history here, uh, I argued as the lone dissenter on an academic task force in favor of the inviolability uh, of independent expenditures. To me, the basic starting point of the country's founding, the core of the Declaration of Independence, is that governments are instituted to serve a person's natural and inalienable rights. And that when the people decide that the form of a government fails to serve those rights, they retain the right to replace the form of government with a new one. 
in a democracy, elections are the legally constrained and peaceful means uh, for citizens to throw out the people who are in power and replace them with new people. To me, therefore, the individual, the citizen's rights to use all of his or her own fortune to throw out the government rests on a bedrock principle of the nation's founding. On the other hand, I do support contribution limits, and I frankly consider that I do so based on conservative principles. Most people write about contributions as if the main problem is with contributors influencing office holders. We know from we know that the concern is at least as significant in the opposite direction. We know that office holders are in a position to put serious pressure on donors to extract ever-increasing amounts from them. And while the language of the criminal law doesn't fit the facts, I'm talking about behavior that tends more toward extortion than bribery. If you want to use the language of public choice economists, think about the person who is in a position of power extracting rent. The issue of contribution limits is not just about the liberty of donors. The limits restrict the behavior of elected officials. In this respect, the argument, my position, is fundamentally similar to the one made by Cato's president, Ed Crane, in support of term limits. Crane supports restraining the liberty of voters because of the power in the hands of officeholders. So here, too, I support contribution limits to restrain the power of incumbents. They need not be the limits that, exactly the limits that are in the current law. For example, a higher contribution limit for seed money would not raise the same issues. But removing all limits puts power in the hands of officeholders. Now, that may seem like a bit of a diversion, but my support for contribution limits on this basis is what makes me approach the Speech Now case with a, a certain ambivalence and caution. So let me now turn to the case. Speech Now is asking the court to rule that the right of an individual includes the right to give someone else an unlimited contribution to make independent expenditures, as long as the person receiving the the person or organization receiving the money only gets the money from individuals and only makes independent expenditures. At first blush, I agree with that position, given the facts of this case. I'm about to raise questions about it in a minute, but I want to be clear about that starting point. There's a lot to be said for the position that the right of speech also goes together with the right of association and that this implies the right to contribute together with a statutory duty to disclose. And if we think about this as a purely standalone group, it should be no more subject to pressure than the individual independent spender. In fact, the main arguments I've seen against unlimited, independent contribu unlimited contributions to an independent spending group apply with equal force to the independent spender acting alone. The argument you usually see is essentially that office holders will be corrupted because they'll see the expenditures and feel grateful. But that argument applies with equal force to individual independent spenders. So if you allow the individual, as I think you should, then that would seem to apply a collection of individuals too. But, but let's get to the caveats and the problems. The analogy I just made between one individual and a set of individuals may be limited 
to situations that fit the carefully crafted or the, or the facts, whether the crafted or not, of this case. This is a case in which speech now describes itself as a freestanding association of individuals, individuals who are purely independent on one side of, candid- on one side of candidates and parties, and independent on the other side, from ongoing organizations or entities that take money from labor unions or corporations or from entities that lobby or otherwise entangled in government business. Let's grant this statement of facts. And on the facts, and I have no reason not to grant them, let's grant them. On these facts, the speech now position makes a lot of sense. But before we leap to too many conclusions from these facts, I'd like you to think about a few others. I want to describe some hypotheticals. And I present these hypotheticals not as abstractions. I present them as reasonable descriptions of the way the world works. And if speech now wins in the courts, facts like these surely will present themselves as the next examples to come down the pikes. What kind of fact situations do I have in mind? Let me work through two different sets of hypotheticals. One involves the candidate side of things, and the other is the organizational side. In the first... Let's imagine someone resigns from a high position on a presidential campaign committee and then starts up or becomes the head of a political group that does nothing but makes independent expenditures. Let's also suppose that the group uses some of the same pollsters, some of the same media consultants as a political party. Let's also suppose that the presidential candidate most likely to benefit from the group's independent spending makes its lists of major bundlers freely available on the website, so the, group, so the group we're talking about doesn't have to ask for a special favor to get it. Let's further suppose that, suppose that some of those major funders are the ones that, bundlers are the ones that start the group. Um, let's even suppose that party officials steer donors to the group. For example, by letting the group set up an office suite on the same floor and directly adjacent to the party's own finance committee, at one of the headquarters hotels of the National Party Conventions. You know, you may think I'm being fanciful, but these facts are not made up. Uh, These are an amalgam of facts that were taken from a few of the major pro-democratic 527 groups in 2004 and 2008. My question is this. Would any of those fact situations make any difference to the analysis? And I assume it would, and the speech now... Uh, people would would acknowledge that it would say that it would, but but then I want to get to ask yourself why do they make a difference? What about it makes a difference? I suggest that one reason they make a difference is that they shade into an area that makes us doubt whether the groups are really independent. So if the courts are about to give greater scope to independent spending associations, I would argue that Congress and the FEC should revisit and radically revise its ideas about independence and coordination. At present, the FEC doesn't look at organizations and declare them to be independent. They look at, at specific communications. And this entire beginning point simply fails to address the underlying problem or issue. In the real world, of course, I don't expect the FEC or Congress to address the issue. I mean, it's, an, it's been intractable for 20 years. There would, there would never be a consensus behind it. So my real hope is that if the court does hold speech now uh, to, to, to be exempt from the provisions of the political committee uh, uh, provision of the statute, that it does so in a, as applied ruling 
uh, as applied exemption limited to the facts of this case while leaving the statute and regulation stand for other facts. If not, I expect to see more of these quasi-party committees by party activists with an effect that will basically undermine contribution limits. And as a supporter of contribution limits, that troubles me. Okay, that's enough now for parties and candidates. Let's move now to the organizational side. I want to bear, let's bear in mind, we need to bear in mind that there is a difference between, let's say, groups or ongoing organizations and individuals. Individual, I mean, in fact, individual independent spenders tend to move in and out of the system. Their policy or election goals tend to be evanescent. Some groups are evanescent, too. Uh, their associations of convenience for the moment, and that's the way speech now looks in, in the advisory opinion request, but other groups are not. So to explain my concern, let's suppose another hypothetical. For the sake of for making conversation, as as many of you know, although Mr. Keating is executive director of the Club for Growth, so let's use the Club for Growth. Um, remember, I, I accept SpeechNow's characterization of itself for the sake of analysis. Spe- SpeechNow has several named individuals who want to contribute money, and I'll assume that none of those individuals have used their identifications with other organizations to further their interests in this one. I'll also assume, although I don't remember reading this, I'll assume that they do not plan to use the mailing list or other material resources from the other organization. And that's my basis for saying that SpeechNow has a strong prima facie case. But surely we we won't have trouble thinking of alternative scenarios. For example, the Club for Growth is one of many, has several sophisticated no, is one of many sophisticated political organizations operating today that's made up of several but legally several related but legally separate entities that share common or similar brand names, common purpose, and overlapping leaders. Is that a problem? Not necessarily, but let's think about it in this particular case. The overlapping entities include at least a PAC, a 527 committee, and a C4. And if you go beyond the club to look at others in this arena, there'll be, there could be ones with arms that lobby directly Congress uh, or, or that take corporate contributions. Suppose the club, or even better, suppose the Chamber, for Commerce, Chamber of Commerce, which relies heavily on corporate funding. Suppose either, either of them files the necessary legal papers to create a new organization that will be used only for independent spending. At what point, when you think through the hypotheticals, and I don't have a rule of law, at what point would this begin to raise questions in one's mind, in your mind, in my mind? It clearly would raise questions for me if the new Independence Spending Committee relied on the related entities for infrastructure support, uh, such as mailing lists. What else? How would you feel if there's overlapping governing boards? How about using the related organization's brand name as a way to go out and get support and identity? I don't know. Let's go back to the original purpose of contribution limits for candidates. Do our feelings about an organization's accepting unlimited contributions for independent spending change when the entity making them is part of a network set of entities with some making contributions to candidates, others taking corporate money, and still others lobbying? Would any of them make a difference if we assume, if we view an association's right to make, when we view the association's right to make an independent expenditure? It does to me in the real world, at least on seems 
And it seemed on some level to be important to SpeechNow's lawyers who were at pains to specify that SpeechNow won't do any of these things, that it's different. Um, in, the, in the real world, we do have every reason to expect that if SpeechNow wins its case with a, broad with a broad constitutional ruling, large numbers of ongoing organizations will form these interrelated independent spending committees as part of their political networks. And to the extent that these organizations do exist as parts of intermingled networks, they will be subject in the real world to the same kinds of pressures from office holders as our direct donors. Perhaps this will not be true for principled ideological organizations such as the Club for Growth, which has been more than willing to take on incumbents. But it will be true for other organizations which have different goals. So, as I said at the outset, none of this is tough if you stand on either side of two opposing, fl opposing flanks, if you're willing either to limit independent expenditures or if you're willing to throw out contribution limits and are not terribly concerned about their purpose. But it's a lot tough, tougher in the real world of political practice if you're trying to preserve both, as I think the court is. The hard question is this. If you don't draw the lines between individuals and groups of individuals, then you have to find some way of drawing lines to distinguish one group from another. It's hard to figure this out with a clear line when the behavior, in fact, is along a continuum. The questions are intrinsically hard, but I will submit that the lines have to be drawn somewhere. Once you admit contribution limits of any kind, which I do. And that's why the distinction between individuals and groups has some attraction. It's not the right line in theory. Um, but neither is it right not to have a line at all. The current line puts all associations together. That is problematic. But at least it's easy. So I don't have easy answers here. In principle, I support independent expenditures. But in practice, I want to make sure or be sure that the spenders are truly independent from candidates and parties, and that they're not simply parts of a spider web of networked organizations that together make a farce of the legal limits under which the factually intertwined parts of the same network are meant to live. I would hope, therefore, that if the courts do rule in favor of speech now, that they avoid making sweeping doctrinal pronouncements. It would be more prudent to look for an as-applied remedy limited to the stated facts of this case. I would also hope if the courts do this that they give clear guidelines that make sense, one that fits within its own past framework that supports both contribution limits and independent spending. I said I hope that. I hope they give clear guidance, but I won't predict it, and doing so would not and will not be easy. Before we turn to uh, the Q&A, I thought uh, I might give Steve or David a chance to respond, if you'd like to. Sure. Hopefully. Uh, just, is this, should I push it? Uh, just turn, yeah, that hmm? should be is it on. Is that on? Okay, sorry. Uh, Professor Malbin raises a lot of very interesting questions that get to a lot of the details, as he put it. Uh, under the campaign finance laws, and I think we could endlessly come up with hypotheticals that would raise concerns about 
undue influence or corruption of politicians on, on the reform side, and we could e easily come up with endless hypotheticals that would raise the questions of how much speech or how much regulation of speech is too much. Fortunately, from my side of things, I think the First Amendment has already spelled the answer to that question. The First Amendment sets up a presumption in favor of free speech. Uh, the, 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 the basic debate here, I think, gets down to where does the presumption lie? Do we favor speech and assume that individuals are permitted to speak unless somebody, the government, presumably the FEC, reform groups, others can prove or show that there is some harm from their speech? Or do we assume a presumption of regulation and require individuals to justify what they want to say um, in, their, in their speech uh, and prove that it doesn't cause any problems? The First Amendment answers that question. It's, it's impossible to answer every hypothetical that anybody could come up with on either side. And I would suggest that uh, the last 30 years of campaign finance jurisprudence shows, kind of gives the lie to that incrementalist approach. It will, the, neither side is ever going to solve all of the potential problems that arise under the campaign finance laws on either side by this endless tinkering. And the endless tinkering ultimately weighs against speech in the long run. I think that's what Justice Roberts' decision in the Wisconsin Right to Life pointed to when he said, quote, enough is enough. We cannot continually try to erase um, the, the problems of endless circumvention of these laws as an independent, self-standing justification for, to put more and more limits on speech. Um, so if we are going to have a discussion or a debate about where the lines lie in this regard, what we need to do is really reevaluate the presumption that the First Amendment lays down, and we ought to have an honest and open debate about whether the First Amendment is antiquated, whether it should still exist, or whether we should toss it out in favor of some other presumption. But until we get to that point, the courts should not allow this kind of endless tinkering and those who want to speak should not speak should not be required to effectively justify uh, their right to speak by showing that it's not going to raise any kind of problems or perceptions of corruption. Well, I'm I'm pleased to uh, to hear Michael Malbin saying that he basically agrees with the thrust of what we're trying to do, uh, and I guess if it were up to just him, uh, maybe he can disagree if I'm misinterpreting what he's saying here that uh, he would agree with generally what we're trying to do if we could address all these other hypotheticals. So I would encourage him not to draw the line at just letting individuals speak on their own because essentially everyone knows the uh, phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. And if we allow only Americans to work divided from each other, we're never going to be united and get anything done if something needs to be changed. And that's why the First Amendment protects not only the right to free speech, but the right to assemble in groups of people. So I don't think it works to say we have to draw the line at just letting these individuals act on their own. Because let's face it, most of the people run, running these ads on their own, they don't have a clue what they're doing. The only person who I can ever remember doing anything effectively got rid of Chuck Percy in the U.S. Senate a number of years ago. And Maybe it's because that guy had enough money to really hire good consultants, and he ran very effective ads, and they were a big factor in Percy's defeat. So I don't think we can draw the line at just allowing individuals to speak in unlimited amounts. I think we need to let people get together and do so. Uh, the second thing is all these hypotheticals are kind of interesting 
in some degree, but it, I think it's a great illustration of what I was talking about earlier, how complicated things are. And he was, I think, right that if you take the view that if, you d if we should not have contribution limits, then everything else follows pretty easily. And I tend to fall on that side of the, the uh, debate. But I don't think it's even that important in the Speech Now case or the issues raised by the Speech Now case, because I don't see them at war with the idea of people who want contribution limits. Uh, I think the Speech Now case or method of operation carves out a nice free speech zone where people can actually talk about anything they want and not worry about what all the crazy regulations are, except for the regulations on coordinating with candidates. Now, these are complicated, but basically all the hypotheticals that he's talking about are answered in regulations that I guess have been thrown out by the court lately, but there are still regulations on the book. I'll just, I'm not going to try to address every single one, but I'll address a few. What about somebody resigning from a campaign to run an independent expenditure? Well, there's already a regulation that you can't hire somebody for an independent expenditure-type campaign, whether it's an issue ad campaign or an express advocacy campaign, if it's done within 120 days, I think, of the person working for the campaign. Is 120 days the right number of days? I don't know, but so make it some other number of days if you're not comfortable with that. Same pollsters? Well... I suppose you could use the same polling company, but if you did, the polling company has to have a firewall so information doesn't flow from the independent expenditure group to the candidate. These things that are, are all pretty much addressed in the regulations already, I don't like the regulations. There's been a lot of fighting about the regulations. The regulations are such that if you fall into an investigation by the FEC, you get into the situation of when did you stop beating your wife? How can you prove a negative? on and on and on, but there are regulations about this. As far as other regulations about groups starting up, that's not what we're talking about in the Speech Now case. The speech Now is independent. Um, I don't see that a corporation could start an independent speech group, at least according to the facts that we presented before the court. I would hope someday the court would say that corporations can do independent expenditures, but it's not really relevant to to what we're bringing up here. We're just bringing up something really clear and simple. People ought to be able to get together and talk to each other and then talk to Americans about what they believe America ought to do and to express that through candidates who embody their beliefs. That's what it's all about. So I guess maybe we can do for a rebuttal. No, it's just um, I just wanted to specify that the hypotheticals of organizations with uh, umbrella organizations with large networks of legally distinct entities were, are not uh, hypothetical. Um, and what I was calling for is that the court, if they agree with you, make an as-applied exemption, much as they did in Massachusetts Citizens for Life, and not a broad sweeping doctrinal rule. Uh, I, one of the interesting things I think about this panel is one of the more interesting ones I've been to because usually, as, as Mike mentioned, you go, it's the, uh, the struggle of the reformers versus uh, free speech people. This is a little different in, in many respects because there's – and usually that's levels of disagreement at, at many levels between the – you get a very clear-cut uh, – but this is actually levels of agreement and – 
disagreement that I think uh, has given us a much more subtle picture of this uh, today in, in many ways. It's a different kind of debate in any case. So at this point, we'll move to the questions and answers. Uh, we will have free speech on that matter. You can, however, uh, you may or may not consider this a regulation. We ask that you use the microphone. We ask you identify yourself. And we ask uh, you give any affiliation. And uh, we also ask that anything you say, please be in the form of a question. However, you will not be coerced if you ignore all that, or I don't think you'll be coerced. So could we start uh, with John here in the middle, right up there on the back? Mr. Keating, what is your group's first choice as the outcome of the litigation you're now in? A narrow decision specifically applicable to speech now as an, ad apply, an as-applied ruling or a broader ruling with broader implications for freedom of speech? I don't think it's up to me. I think we've, we've presented a very narrow question. Here's what we want to do. Here's, here's how we plan to do it. Can we do it? And... Uh, so that's all we've asked the court for. We haven't asked for anything else, and I very much doubt, knowing how courts, what little I know about how courts rule, they're not going to go any further afield than the specific question that we have before them, which is look at our charter, our business plan, can we do what we want to do? And it'll probably be simple yes, no. And I, uh, as I said, I'm going to make our bylaws articles of uh, – now, it's not a incorporation because we're not incorporated, but articles of association and uh, our basic rules for operating uh, available on our website. They're already available, and I plan to write up a guide about how to, how to copy SpeechNow's operating plan so you make sure you stay within the law if you want to do something like uh, what we are doing except on some other issue other than free speech. So I don't envision the court going any further afield than, than our particular business plan. Let me just add one point just to clarify. This is actually an as-applied challenge on its, on its face. It's an as-applied challenge. It doesn't take on the entire regulatory structure um, on its face. It simply says speech now should be able to do what it wants to do. Now, if the issue ultimately gets to the Supreme Court, the court can obviously do with it what it wishes. But uh, I think it's it's most likely that we would get a fairly narrow ruling on the facts as they are basically presented by speech now. Let, let me just add one other thing, which is I, I've thought about this a lot, and I've, I've tried to to come up with a structure to make it as simple as possible for people that just want to speak out. And uh, I think this will liberate speech considerably, not only on federal candidates but there are a lot of laws at the state level that are even worse than uh, the federal ones. So my hope is that there'll be a follow-up, if there needs to be, a follow-up case that would sweep away similar state restrictions that are sort of, you know, patterned on the federal ones. Gentleman on the right here, or my right. Um, Al Milliken, uh, Washington Independent Writers. Um, would anyone be willing to give an evaluation, a grade on how good and how effective libertarians have been in defending and promoting the First Amendment? Uh, do most modern-day libertarians care more about free markets, free pleasure, and free sex than they do about free speech and association and assembly and freedom of religion? 
Well, who is the expert on the panel? On well, the you're with the Libertarian <laughs> Cato Institute. I'll let uh, you take that one. <laughs> I will say, uh, well, we'll leave aside the free sex and so on. I, <laughs> not being an expert on that. Uh, I would say, my, in my own view, and this is a self-interested view, you, must, you have to take it. But uh, I think uh, libertarians and particularly the Cato Institute have done a remarkable job over the last 30 years in taking up a position that, you know, one of the things about this position is it is not one that one can raise money on all that easily. It is not one that has, uh, has problems in public opinion. And yet we've seen uh, people like our guest today uh, persist strongly over that period of time in different ways and to keep a uh, inside sometimes in very difficult periods, uh, like McCon- the period when McConnell was decided or, or before that, when the position seemed like it was going to lose. So um, for those facts, I would say, even if I didn't work at the Cato Institute, I would say uh, a pretty remarkable job and not one you would particularly expect to have been done. Well, let me add to this because he's probably too modest. If you look at the think tanks in town, how many of them have any policy experts that devote a substantial amount of their time to campaign finance and political speech regulation? Cato, I think, is really the only one uh, that's doing that. And I think, you know, John is, I think, doing a a great job. I'm grateful for the forum today, for example. The Institute for Justice, I don't know if they characterize themselves as libertarian or not, but certainly some of the people that work there are. And they, and you look at the litigation that's being done on free speech cases, and it's the leading work is being done by Institute for Justice. And then the same is true, the Center for Competitive Politics. Almost all of the debate on campaign finance regulation has been dominated by groups found, you know, funded by and large by large, unaccountable uh, foundations that got their money from who knows where uh, and are spending it on regulating speech. And the Center for Competitive Politics is doing a great job explaining to people, in my, my view, I, I don't know if they would consider themselves libertarian, but some of the people there, uh, Brad Smith is, is important with it. He used to uh, be affiliated with Cato and write papers for Cato. So, and they've done great work explaining some of the problems with campaign finance regulation. Most recently, the excellent thing on uh, John McCain's troubles with uh, the uh, public financing and his loan. So... If you look at what's being done, I think libertarian-leaning groups are doing a great job. I'll just add one thing since we're spreading the praise around here. Mike has actually take, uh, undertaken a very difficult position. The, Mike's presentation today, I would say, uh, is very typical of the work in his organization does also, which is, if you noticed, it was not, uh, while they had certain sympathies with the so-called reform position, with the, what I would call the restricting speech position, it also was not wholly in that position. So the thing I, the Campaign Finance Institute has been an attempt to bring uh, research uh, on these issues to bear. And it's one that I think, what's not something I would say about uh, everyone that's favorable to the reform position, is I always feel free when I talk to people to say, if you want to know about small donors, you want to know about research that's been done, go to the Campaign Finance Institute site. You're not going to get 
uh, information there about the donors. You can get information about the laws. You can get information about the research that's been done, about what's actually happening with campaign finance that you can rely on. So I think that is a remarkably difficult position to, to be in, too. So I second those comments. Yeah. We're not being mean to one another. We've got to be mean to one another, gentlemen, or it's not going to be fun for the... The uh, Let's see, down here. I hope I'm not missing anyone. Uh, Jacob Greer, Cato Institute, and uh, maybe I'll give you a chance to be mean to each other with this question. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, uh, Mr. Malbin, I was really interested in your case for uh, contribution limits as a means of protecting people from being extorted by incumbents. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it struck me that you might equally make the case that we should empower people to be able to make large contributions to groups like SpeechNow and uh, perhaps even to lift uh, or relax uh, uh, disclosure requirements so people could make a large donation and not fear retribution if uh, perhaps the incumbent still won. Uh, so my question is, why not make the uh, public choice case for their side and for your side if you would be open to wanting to relax disclosure requirements if SpeechNow succeeds? Well, you was directed, was directed first to me. Um, if I can separate out the two. Um, I do support the individual's right to spend everything, to, to take on incumbents or challengers. Uh, why not for this group? As I said, this group doesn't particularly worry me. Does other people? Uh, it becomes a different story if it becomes part of a network of organizations. Uh, so, if you grant the premise uh, that giving the people who hold power is a potential threat to the liberty of citizens, uh, you know, giving the un untrammeled ability to extract rent from citizens, if you grant that premise, then. Uh, uh, then you're granting the case for contribution limits, and at the same time, you're making the case for independent spending. Uh, about disclosure, um, I will acknowledge that some people are uh, uh, deterred by needing to disclose and would make the argument that the uh, public's interest in knowing in order to trace and because of the reality of networks uh, uh, counterbalances that, and people can... There, there ought to be an easier way for people to make the case, as they are legally allowed to do to the court, uh, that to courts that it would be a, a, a threat to them. For people who support unpopular causes, there ought to be an easier way for them to make that petition. Uh, but it's, but that is a, that to me does not lead to the case for no, no disclosure because the disclosure rests on. I mean, the election rests on. Uh, the, the ability of people to have knowledge. Okay. Yeah, just a, a brief point. I, I think the point is an excellent one, and, and I agree that uh, rent-seeking is a serious problem, um, but you get, you get rent-seeking because the government has the ability to deliver on the, uh, on the seeker's request. The, the government controls a vast amount of resources, and that, uh, that provides a really nice opportunity for those who want to exploit those resources to appeal to the government to, to give them handouts. 
that that is a, a real issue and it's a real problem. Ultimately, I think the, the only real solution to that is to limit what the government has to hand out. Uh, but more to the point, campaign finance laws cannot solve that problem. All they can end up doing is putting limits on the ability of the people who ultimately are harmed by the rent-seeking um, to, to actually fight back against it in some way uh, by opposing the candidates who do it. So campaign finance laws will not solve the problem of rent-seeking. I, I do see, I have seen, and I'm sure will continue to see, problems caused by disclosure. There are a lot of people that will not give money because uh, of disclosure. And I, I'm sympathetic with that because they're usually just flat out afraid. Uh, some are afraid, but some are just uh, perhaps don't want to live in a community where they f- have people knowing that they're giving money to a cause that other people in the community don't believe in. So, but on the other hand, I just don't see in the near future disclosure changing as a political it's a political reality. And then if I think back to the Declaration of Independence, I mean, these people didn't hide from the, the, you know, the British. They signed the Declaration of Independence and said, put your John Hancock here, right? And everybody knows what his signature looks like to this day. So, uh, you know, I think if, if people feel the government's oppressive, they'll, they'll uh, live with disclosure and get it changed. So, it's not part of our agenda at speech now. There are plenty of other things we want to fight way before that. Gentleman down here. Here's your microphone. You referred earlier to, uh, I'm sorry, Edward Roeder, Sunshine Press. You ref- referred earlier to uh, Senator Percy's defeat because of independent expenditures. He was actually targeted by pro-Israel PACs which at the time and since have come to give more to influence American elections, federal elections, than all ideological causes of the left and right. And my question for you, if you succeed in allowing these sorts of independent expenditures, is given how we're globalizing our economy, the world's economy, and given how much more important American elections are to foreign interests than often to American interests, and how important it might have been for a small group of Nicaraguans or Pakistanis or Afghanis or Iraqis to have influenced our policies, and how they might have been willing to put in millions more than Americans to accomplish that aren't you concerned that Americans can lose control of their elections to the extent that their elections to the extent that we equate spending with free speech in elections I'm not concerned at all because the speech now uh, bylaws uh, we don't accept contributions for anyone other than American citizens so that's an easy one and just generally uh, non-citizens can't give give to candidates and PACs either. So I don't think it's an issue. Um, can I say something about that? Um, Ed, you're the person, as you well know, the person who, to, whom, uh, to whom the speakers were referring was a, was a Jewish man from Chicago who I believe gave $400,000 and spent about four, that amount in independent spending uh, against Charles Percy. 
Um, the rest of your statement about Jewish organizations is flatly not even close to being true. That's correct. I, I agree. There, you, know, you look at the, the data, it's just not there. So, It's large sums. Um, right here on the right, my right. Thanks. I'm uh, Joe Birkenstock with Kaplan and Drysdale here in D.C. Yes. Um, my question is for David and Steve, and I think it's kind of technical, unfortunately, but I think it actually helped me address some of the concerns that Mike was describing about the consequences that could flow from this. Um, and what I'm driving at basically is whether a successful outcome for your organization would require the conclusion that you are not a PAC at all or that, in fact, you are a PAC, but one against which none of the contribution limits can apply. And like question, I suppose, to put it as narrowly as I can is, would you be satisfied with the outcome that you are, in fact, a PAC, but as to one as to which none of the individual contribution limits apply, with the point being that the FEC's disclosure regime is just much more robust than that of the IRS. So yeah, unlike the 527 yeah. progress, you would, you would still have to, you'd be, have, you'd be as free as you are now to do everything you want to do. You'd just be disclosing through a means that allows more internet ability and more searchability. Now, well, you're wrong on that, just flat out wrong. That we we uh, would disclose to the FEC our expenditures and our donations within 48 hours of any any uh, communication, and you know through the last time we made a disclosure is how it would work. We would also have on top of that the IRS disclosure because of the way the IRS rules work. Would I be happy with it? Yeah, I mean I, I would be ecstatic if the court said, well, you could do whatever you want, but you have to file as a pack. But I, I don't think that's I don't think it's right to say we need to be a pack. And there are problems with being a pack for for a number of reasons. One is I can handle it because I understand it. Okay, there are a lot of people out there that they don't understand all this stuff about packs. I mean, there are a lot of people that really just do want to kick in a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, and they shouldn't have to be packs either. And that's part of what we're asking the court: Do we need to be a pack? The second thing is, I think it makes my fundraising harder if I'm a pack. For, I mean, it's not hugely harder because I think I can handle it. But I think, uh, first of all, packs have terrible PR, ter- terrible name ID. I, we are an independent speech group. I want to be called an independent speech group because that's what we are. Packs are groups that are affiliated with special interests. They're affiliated with corporations. Have packs. Uh, trade associations have PACs. Labor unions have PACs. When, I want, when I'm running an ad, when our group's running an ad, I don't want some media place to say it's a PAC. It's a group of citizens speaking. To me, that's important. Maybe, you know, people say, well, that's not that important. To me, it's important, and I would like to not be called a PAC. And then the final thing is, if we're called a PAC, that raises confusion in asking donors for contributions, because everyone understands if you give money to a PAC, you can't give more than 5000 So I have to spend part of my pitch saying, well, it doesn't really apply to us, and on and on and on, and look at this opinion, and blah, blah, blah. You know, give me a break. Let's just create, if we win this, the FEC is going to create a new regulation to reflect the court decision, and hopefully they'll call it independent speech group, and then people can Everybody will know if it's to an independent speech group. The contribution limits don't apply. So I think it would make it easier if, if we just do it. The disclosure is all there. There's going to be just as much disclosure as with a PAC. The only thing people won't know is how much money we're receiving or spending on administrative stuff until we make uh, – or I guess they'll never know until they look at the IRS how much we're spending on administrative stuff. 
but everything will be out there on, a, on communications and donations. The All I would add to that is that if you take away the contribution limits and recognizing that, that speech now will be disclosing under the independent expenditure disclosure provisions as well as the 527 uh, uh, provisions, it's pointless to consider them a pack beyond that, and it just lards on all of this uh, additional burden. So, you know, I mean, it would be a second-best option, but uh, it, it seems utterly pointless to consider them a pack um, if you're not going to have all of the re regulations that, that apply to PACs. One other thing. It's interesting. What you propose is exactly what uh, chairman of the FEC, David Mason, wrote in his opinion. And today, the FEC's response is due to our lawsuit. I don't know if they're going to take the chairman's opinion and give it to the court, being facetious here, or the staff's opinion, but it'll be interesting. I guess we'll find out soon enough. One more. Uh, again, I see John's hand. Uh, thanks, John, for the second bite at the apple. This one's actually for Mike, just to, to help assess um, the other side of the ledger, um, since you're someone with a long record of caring about the First Amendment. In a world where uh, Mr. Keating simply loses his case and the staff opinion of the FEC holds out and what speechnow.org wants to do is illegal, how comfortable or uncomfortable are you with what they want to do being illegal over the long term? Um, in, in principle, I think it ought to be, as, as described, uh, it ought to be legal. Um, in practice, um, there will do things, there will, I assume, follow Justice Roberts' um, guidelines and can come out with um, statements praising and blaming candidates uh, proximate to an election. Uh, and if that's what they do, uh, they won't even have to disclose. Well, on that note, we'll draw our, uh, our uh, event to a close. I want to thank each of our speakers for a very interesting, very thorough, very detailed discussion, very knowledgeable discussion. I'd like to thank each of you for coming and uh, being part of this event. Uh, Please join us upstairs now for lunch, where we'll have a chance to talk more about these issues. Uh, thank you for coming to Cato today.